Stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai, a global fintech innovating in its area of expertise, which is building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. Companies and organizations around the world are being confronted with alarming challenges a global pandemic, market shocks, climate change, political instability. But in these unsettled times, today's guest reveals that managers and executives have a secret weapon on their side, an overlooked group of employees that share what she calls the gig mindset, a freelancer style knack for improvisation, adaptability, and innovation that offers a crucial key to the future. Found at all levels of the workforce, but often stifled by managers, gig mindsetters are disruptors who upend business as usual and bridge gaps while achieving surprising outcomes and charting new directions. In today's book, our guest brings her decades of research into workforce culture, organizational strategy, and digital transformation into a compelling wake-up call to managers and executives. Long-term success and well-being lie in understanding and developing a gig mindset work culture in both organizations and in individuals. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of The Gig Mindset Advantage, Why a Bold New Breed of Employee is Your Organization's Secret Weapon in Volatile Times. Jane McConnell, welcome to the show. Hi, Aidan. It's a real honor to be here. You have a great Irish name, so we're going to claim you as one of our own, an Irish Irish person. Actually, Aiden, my origins are American, the Midwest. I was born in Nebraska, (laughs) and I now have been in France for well over half my life. And Uh, yes, I have origins that have an Irish name. I want to give a shout out to a regular listener, a huge supporter of the show, who introduced us as well, a guy called Paul Kirchina. Paul listens to the show regularly, great advocate of the show, and he introduced us kindly. Let's get into it. There is so much in this book. While the introduction alludes to what the gig mindset advantage is, I'd love to hear it from the mother of the term, you, because you caution that unless management is aware of the benefits of having a work culture oriented toward the gig mindset, the organization runs a risk of disappearing or diminishing in its place, its place in the world. Gig mindsetters are not troublemakers causing problems, even though some that you have talked to have experienced that reaction. In reality, they trigger change and enable organizations to face the future with both ambition and serenity. I love that opening quote to tee you up to tell us who are these new characters that are so key in organizations of the future? Well, um, it's very interesting because when I did the research for the book and I did a lot of interviews afterwards, uh, I realized that the gig mindset is something organizations need. They need a gig mindset work culture. However, all these change management programs, the big ones don't don't work that well. I mean, that's sort of documented by a lot of different people in it. And uh, sort of some of the big change consultancies in the world even admit to that. Because in my opinion, things have to start inside the person, inside the individual. That's where it starts. And I have uh, 
started after I finished the book, published it, and I've actually started working on the second follow-up book. But in the meantime, I started a podcast, which is uh, quite different from your style. It's short episodes, 20, 25 minutes with different people. And I've discovered through connections, people like Paul connecting me to people and others, some absolutely amazing stories. And each time, the thing that happened in the organization started inside a single person. Uh, and so I, I feel very strongly that the quote that you did of me is absolutely still valid today in 2022. That especially, maybe I should say even more valid than when I wrote it, in that organizations are undergoing major challenges and so are people. And I think it's inside people that things need to start. Wonderful. And I'm going to continue on this because there were so many quotes that I pulled. I sent you my notes before the show to show you how much value I took from it. It was such a, a great read. And I pulled this quote and you might expand upon this one. You write, gig mindsetters are a new breed of employee who dare to challenge the traditional way of thinking and ways of working that in the end will make the organization more resilient and successful in volatile times. They are, in effect, a secret weapon for the organization. And this is the point. However, they are unseen and not yet recognized for their impact. Once they are seen in a new light and understood by management, celebrated and encouraged, they can inspire others, stimulate new thinking and help the organization build strength and self-sustaining resilience. And the reason I pulled that one, Jane, is that so many times in an organization, these key employees get ostracized, or they are frustrated and they leave, or they are actually forcibly ejected from organizations in many cases, because the we hear this as a cliche now, but the corporate immune system ejects them, rejects them, and suppresses them. And it's very, very difficult psychologically as well for these people. Absolutely. And if an organization wants to be resilient, it needs people who are resilient. I mean, an organization is nothing but people working together. And it's important for organizations and people to be aware, to be aware of what's around them. And one of the traits of gig mindsetters is they are watching the external world and they are bringing back information and ideas and sharing it internally. And one of the big challenges that they have is that management's not aware of what they're doing. Management ignores it because they don't see it. Uh, when management does become aware, sometimes they fight it because it's a, a threat to their ways of working. You talked about challenging the traditional way of working. Uh, that's exactly what these people are doing. And you can imagine if you've been working a certain way for many, many years, and someone comes and challenges the way you're doing that, you're very likely going to, to resist that and to fight it. And at some point, in some cases, there'll be a breakthrough where the person actually embraces it, the manager embraces it because something clicks. Uh, they have come to a realization that what these gig mindsetters are doing is important. Does that I, make sense to you, Aiden? Absolutely, Jane. I, and I've been there. I, I worked in an organization like this where one of the challenges for a gig mindsetter, which I would classify myself having read the book is that you may appear sometimes a bit random, 
and that you haven't got a clear cut plan. And that's often the case. But the way I kind of see a gig mindsetter is it's like a snow globe. And a, a, a gig mindsetter is very comfortable in the snow globe sh shaking up and the pizza of snow are everywhere and actually gets uncomfortable when they're settled. And there's a plan because because of what you say in the title, the volatile world we live in, things are constantly changing. So so must your plan. And that that is very difficult for an, a legacy organization leader to get their head around is that the plan is just a very temporary direction. And it will change very, very often. And a gig mindsetter understands this inherently. That's really key to what we're going to be talking about today. One of the, I would say the, the first goal of my book was to make it really clear to people what the gig mindset is and how it brings life to organizations that are quite stagnant in a stagnant form in many cases today. And with the different stories I tell, the quotes I make and the specific case studies I develop in more detail, shows that the importance of it and the fact you cannot ignore it. It's emerging, it's happening, and it just can't be ignored. Let's get into part two, which you entitle, The Future is at Stake. And here you explore the potential influence of gig mindsetters, where they act in ways that are good for organizations, often through what you call a kind of civil disobedience, which I love. <laughs> but appear to be against the way the organization traditionally functions because they are. And you say management misinterprets these behaviors through willful blindness, not seeing the value they bring and interpreting them, the gig mindsetters, as negative rather than positive influences. I, I often think of that, that they're considered naysayers when they are in fact gainsayers. They're trying to call out broken processes, broken strategies for the better good of the organization. And that is to be embraced, not seen as a troublemaker. Using the image of civil disobedience shocked a lot of people when they found that in the book. Uh, <clears throat> I owe that idea to someone I interviewed that I'll tell you about a little bit later, who said that civil disobedience changes in the organization are like making changes in society. And he sees it as an act of civil disobedience. And civil disobedience is nonviolent. It's refusing to comply with something because you don't believe in it and taking the next step of doing something differently. And for this to be interesting for organizations, they need digital capabilities. And I'd like to share my with you my what I call the aha moment I had when I saw in my, well, you made a reference earlier to my decades of research, and I have been researching since uh, my first survey was 2006. Uh, and it's been every year up through 2016, what I call the organization in the digital age. And around 2015, I saw something that really, what I call my aha moment. And that's when I saw people capabilities that I've been measuring for years, reaching a point of existing in over half the organizations. And in 2018, in a follow-up survey, they'd reached 75% of organizations. And these three things are critical to 
bringing change about, and actually they underlie their, their framework for civil disobedience. The first one is people able to find each other and find expertise in the organization without going through the HR directory and all the official statements of who's an expert in what, or the org chart or the job titles, but through interacting with people, it's natural that expertise emerges. Being able to make comments on content produced even by management lets expertise and recognition of gig mindsetters among gig mindsetters, they can recognize each other. I worked with the telecoms organization for a few years. They're headquartered in Paris. And they told me this story. They had a CEO who was blogging. And this is back in, let me look at my notes, around 2003, 2004, this guy was blogging. No CEO was blogging. CEOs were putting out their statements and written by corporate communications and so on. This guy was blogging and People, communication department was horrified. They tried to stop him, but he was the CEO and they couldn't. And um, it at the beginning, people in the company clicked like, like, we like this. Okay, so that, that's good. Then after about six, eight, nine months, people began to ask questions to the CEO. They dared ask questions. And after another nearly year, people began to offer alternate uh, alternative opinions. It took this company two years for the people in the organization to feel comfortable in speaking directly with the CEO. Interestingly, just a little sideline, when the guy left the company, this whole thing, I'm not going to name the company because a lot of things happened afterwards, but there was a, within six months, the whole dynamic atmosphere had changed radically. But anyway, so the third thing I noticed was that people could connect to each other across the organization, mainly through enterprise social networks. So being able to find expertise, interact, connect, um, these were things that had reached 75% of organizations. And this, the really horrifying thing, Aiden, I have a chart I can't show you here, but I, it has a ladder on it. And I show how this, this, these capabilities are going up. The leadership being open and participatory stayed at a low level over all those years. And so we had this increasing gap between leadership attitudes where they were command and control or pretty much command and control and people capabilities going up, 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 up. And I wrote about it in the sense that I said, a collision is going to happen. And uh, that is where for me, the whole concept of the gig mindsetter uh, emerged. I could see it happening with my clients and I had data to prove that it was happening. I love that you, you said this about the convergence of those three factors. It was a question that I had for you and you you, you nailed it beautifully there. But I wanted to share like I, I don't um, I suppose I have a I've scar tissue from this experiences of being a gig mindset as well, because you go through the experience of the negativity that happens as well. And when when I was in this role, I was telling you I was in a a very corporate legacy organization, very bureaucratic one. I did the same thing. I started blogging because one of the things that was needed for that organization was to change its outward face to the customer, essentially. And I thought by going, look, we're trying these things and, and sharing these publicly using LinkedIn, it was a good way to do it. I also started this show when I was there, Jane, as well. So I started doing the show for them originally. And, th and then... I started doing what you were talking about with networking externally. 
and bringing those people in to share their views of the world and where we were doing things wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But then it all culminated in a, a performance review that took me by surprise. So I was sat down by my manager at the time. And after expressing no disappointment or no issues, she warned me that one, I had to stop writing, that I was not representing the company. And I said, I never was, I never said I was. Two, to stop doing the show and hand over the, the presentership to somebody else, find a presenter, keep the show because that was interesting, but not me. And then three was to be at my desk more and stop meeting people both in across the organization across the silos, but especially outside the organization. And I, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I started laughing. And that of course, that was fuel on the fire it was even worse. <laughs> yeah. And, and then Jane, what happened was, I magically got a letter from HR, uh, you know, some issue that was uh, concocted. Uh, and I answered it. And luckily, I, I was absolutely covered on this. And it was it wasn't an issue. But I just knew I was like going, ah, and in the moment, they are very, very hard to live through. But in retrospect, it was absolutely essential for my experience and authenticity in this work, because I experienced what it was like for those people. And many of those people listen to this show. And they're the people you're talking about here. So I'd love your view of that, because you've interviewed these people across the world, industry agnostic, and it happens everywhere. It does happen everywhere. And the thing that is interesting is that um, it's important, I think, although it takes a big effort, it's important to understand where the resistance is coming from. I mean, you can't fight anybody, management or anyone else, if you don't understand where that person is coming from. And I mean, there are some people who are sort of faking the whole thing, but a lot of people genuinely are against what it is you're trying to do. And they think they have a good reasons for it. And so it's important to understand that resistance and that helps you overcome the resistance. Well, you know, before we go into detail there, I'd like to talk to you quickly, Aiden, about some interesting discoveries I made when I looked at skills, the new soft skills that gig mindsetters bring inside organizations, which you were doing in your case that you told me about. Um, because of your bringing in that outsider perspective, sharing it with other people. And uh, that's not a skill that is normally recognized uh, by most organizations. And I've been following the Future of Jobs report, which is published by the World Economic Forum every two years. And in 2016, they had certain skills that were important. 2018, they added skills. They added uh, autonomy, responsibility, originality. But the thing that I found really interesting was that they just come out with a report in 2020. They just came out in 2020 that they call skills people need for the next five years. Organizations need these skills. And uh, one of the new ones is what they call critical thinking and analysis. And they also talked about problem solving. And they talked about active learning. And when I saw this, I thought that was fantastic because these are things for me that are all part of the gig mindset way of behaving. I did my first gig mindset survey in 2018. I had done the organization in the digital age for 10 years. And that's when I then 
discovered the gig mindset, focused on the gig mindset. And I did the gig mindset survey in 2018, where I had people rate themselves according to certain behaviors and so on. And then uh, the people I worked with, I had an advisory board, which I did for all my surveys of experts and practitioners. They said to me, after 2018, we got into the pandemic and all that. And they said to me, you know, you need to do it again. In 2021, things have changed a lot. Now, personally, I didn't think <laughs> things, obviously, there were many, many changes, but I didn't think the whole workplace environment, other than working from home, uh, had uh, changed tremendously. And I was surprised to see that there were three things uh, that increased significantly between 2018 and sort of after the pandemic, 2021, even though the pandemic's not finished yet. There are countries uh, very struggling very hard against it, even today. But the three factors that changed were people were self-managing more. That makes sense. They were working from home. Uh, they felt encouraged to experiment and take initiatives. I think that might be because the supervisor wasn't there looking over the shoulders. But the thing I liked the most was that people felt they had been rewarded for solving problems. And that went from 50% to 65%. That's a high percentage in a survey like this. So there was something happening. I mean, there was a recognition on the part of management, be it slow, uh, that some of these changes are important and bring benefit to the organization. There's a quote there that encapsulates that that I loved that I'll share with our audience. You said gig mindsetters with a strong sense of self can potentially influence the people around them. They see issues that others do not see and take action to solve them. They have an outsider perspective because of their interest and participation in external networks and events, and they are able to bring this perspective back inside their organization. They cross borders inside the organization and they establish horizontal flows of information and energy, as well as flows from the bottom up. They bring new soft skills that you mentioned into the organization, especially those relating to autonomy, resilience, stress tolerance, and flexibility. And we'll come back to the resilience because that's a huge point you make. But I wanted to share a beautiful term you coined as well, which is inside outsiders. Because here you say, the clarity and objectivity of the outsider combined with the in-depth knowledge of the insider. It's that blend of those two things that makes a gig mindset are so valuable to an organization. Absolutely. And for me, that's a, a, a I don't know what to call it, a, a trend or it's a behavior that is absolutely business critical today. I interviewed a guy in India who's sort of a mid-career manager. I don't know what his age is, but uh, he's not he's not beginning in the company and he's not in senior management. So I would call him mid-career. This is what he said to me, that he decided to position himself internally as an external advisor. And I quote now, he said, knowing that in the future, permanent jobs will be replaced with gigs and projects based on skills and aptitude has enabled me to adopt a consultant mindset. That was the term he used, a consultant. I'll say a gig mindset, but he said a consultant mindset where I can see things from within the organization with the eyes of an outsider. It allows me to see things in a new light. And I think his conscious effort to do that is something that people who 
want to bring change in their organization can think about, see what's happening around them inside, but imagine they are an outsider trying to understand that. Um, a person from uh, Australia, a government worker, said something very similar to me. She said, if you've got ideas, you can network. You can go out and learn new things, research new things, and then the key, then you can bring that back and improve the organization tremendously. That's where I see the gig mindset is the way to go. So here we have someone in the government in Australia, and this guy in India, who both see the future of the gig mindset because it is bringing the outside world in. And in fact, just a quick little promotional uh, blurb on my part. I started a newsletter on LinkedIn about a couple months ago that I call the Inside Outsider. And I, I publish a short little post type thing every week with a story or an extract from my book talking about the Inside Outsider because I feel it is so important as a concept. Did you feel like an Inside Outsider? Firstly, I'll share the link to that to your newsletter, Jane, as well in the show notes for everybody and um, make sure that we get all the content to, to our listeners. But secondly, the, the inside outsider made absolute sense to me. Be, but where I thought how we can change this is you make that deliberate. I mean, the gig mindsetter does that deliberately. They have a view. It's almost like, well, I run a bakery but I taste my own cooking of my own <laughs> baked goods all the time to make sure I know what it's like to be a customer. And oftentimes, an exec team, for example, or a leadership team, or even middle management team are so far removed from what it's like to be a customer for their own product, that they don't know what it's like to be an outsider. And they need to and they need to be exactly what you say the inside outsider. You mentioned this shift from willful blindness to positive deviance. Love that. And I'd love to expand on this, because it in part explains the resistance that you mentioned earlier on to gig mindsetters. I'd love to share that. And you touch here on six common mental or emotional traps detrimental to the future of all organizations, all leaders, all workers of the future. They are pride in past successes, dependence on best practices and benchmarking, fear of losing power, fear of speed, a false sense of safety in the silos, and living in filter bubbles. I thought they were absolutely key, absolutely prevalent, omnipresent in so many organizations, but actually drivers towards extinction for many organizations. I'd love you to unpack this. That's great, drivers towards extinction. That's, uh, that's your phrase, by the way, not mine. And uh, I think I'll add it to my <laughs> next <Please>. book. <laughs> drivers towards extinction. That's exactly what it is. And some of, sometimes these phrases sound dramatic, but they are not dramatic if we look at uh, a number of cases that have happened over the last years. Something I learned is that the term willful blindness is a legal term. It's used in law, and it means someone who's accused of something was willfully blind, and that they say they didn't know it, they weren't aware of it, but they should have been. That's what the legal definition is. And so willful blindness is what we see with a lot of uh, leadership. You read those six traits. I'll just give you an example of each one. I think the, one of the experiences I had with a client that literally shocked me is the first one, pride in past success. I had uh, given an 
end of conference talk to a retail company up in the north of France, very, very big, very well known. And uh, they had a two-day series of workshops with people from around Europe who, from their company, because they were headquartered in France, but uh, based in Europe, uh, based in Europe, worked in different countries in Europe. And what was interesting, they had the CEO at the workshop and they had in the workshops and they had a board member. And this board member was the oldest person in the room, which is, you know, okay. Uh, the other people, the, the workers were in their late 20s, early 30s, maximum 40. The CEO was not that much older. And so I gave a talk at the end of the two days about the gig mindset and the people loved it. The CEO loved it. Great applause. Then we went off to have dinner and we were standing at the bar having a pre-dinner drink with the board member who came up to me. He came up to me to congratulate me. Great talk. I really enjoyed it. And then I thought he was joking when he said to me, but you know, Jane, we don't need that in our company. We have been so successful. We don't need to change anything. We're just going to go on the way we are now because we are a leader in our industry, which they were. At first, and I thought he was joking. He was not joking. He was dead serious, uh, courteous, appreciative of my work, but thank you, no thank you. And um, that, that's, uh, I think that's a common reaction. And it's sort of normal when you think about it. Uh, these people have been working for, in some, he must've been working like what, 30 years or more in the company, proud of, of what had been achieved, rightfully so, and unable, willfully blind uh, of what was coming. The dependence on best practices is something that I, I find intriguing. It makes total sense now. I often advise my clients in the past to look at best practices, what are the companies doing? But you know, best practices are based on what? They're not based on the future. They're based on the past. It's something that people did, organizations did to reach the point they're at. And benchmarking is sort of comparing our company to your company and so on. And this is all based on the past. And there's a, a corporate strategist and author, a guy called C.K. Prahalad, uh, no longer living, but uh, Prahalad was, had done a lot of writing and he was famous for uh, some concepts he created. He said, looking forward is more important than looking backward. And a Forgetting curve is more important for our companies than a learning curve. We need to forget. I can send you a link and you can put in the show notes because this guy, several of his articles on the Harvard Business Review are, are really good. And the thing I like the best is he says, we should be looking for next practices, not studying best practices. Beautiful. Don't you love that? Beautiful. The idea of a, yeah. a learning, a forgetting curve and looking for next practices. I mean, that guy really, really put his finger on what was happening. This was near the end of his uh, career also that he was saying these things. The fear of losing power, of course, is uh, understandable. Uh, people have been, uh, a guy I interviewed said that the gig mindset vastly undermines the existential purpose of traditional management. Uh, we don't need them anymore. He, he's a bit of an extremist. I think that we do need management in a different way, but he doesn't agree with me. He feels that managers have been working for 20 years or more in their field, and they are attached to the idea of being a manager. And suddenly that's been threatened, that destabilizes them. 
And I think that's part of what we have to understand. I think he put his finger on a on a psychological thing there that's that's important. Jane and I were speaking before the show, and I shared about my time playing in France. And one of the things about the end, I was say, saying to Jane about when you come to the end of your career, the most useful thing you can do is forget you had one. <laughs> because some people over identify with the jerseys they wore, and that becomes their persona. But you're so young when you're retiring from professional sports, you have to just burn up the jersey and move on. I, I have the concept often of a phoenix burning up who you were from the ashes, take what's useful and then go on for a new incarnation. And I think that's really relevant for the manager that the role itself is becoming obsolete. To an extent, we still need managers, but we managers are most valuable when the environment is predictable and steady and stayed. And they're managing certain processes, not exploring new curves. You mentioned the board member, I had a, a recent experience, Jane, where I was given a keynote for uh, one of the professions. So it was a legal profession. And at the end, there was a Q&A. And again, the master of ceremonies for the q and I, I was talking about how, you know, if it when in the legal profession, with the onset of things like smart contracts and blockchain, people need to upskill on that future curve and have a little bit of the forgetting curve, forget, you know, the way things used to be, because they're not going to be that way for very long. And so I gave the keynote. <laughs> and I was the, at the end, the MC says to me, of course, this doesn't apply to us. And I was like, kind of going, is he joking is like, I'm actually literally talking about your profession is going to be absolutely upended. And then I thought actually same thing as as your board member, this man was in his later years towards the end near retirement. So he didn't want to know about the upending and he didn't want to be part of that. He just wanted to ride out the rest of his career. So I absolutely get that there's a huge psychological aspect. Yeah, it's um, discouraging to think that maybe what companies need to do is wait until these people retire, because in fact, that may be too late also. Again, we'll get back to civil disobedience. You need to do something now. Uh, one of the things I think that upsets these people is fear of speed. Things in the past were slower, they're more predictable. You could determine the path you're going to take. And in my survey data, I found out that people with the higher gig mindset based on the scores that we had established, the higher the gig mindset was, the more, the faster they saw change happening outside and the slower they saw it happening inside. And then I took the people in the survey that had a lower gig mindset score and they saw the outside as going fast, but they saw the inside as doing just fine. And so that gig mindset help and forces you to perceive things uh, in a different way. Uh, safety and silos. Here I have a, a quick story, a guy who made quite an impression on me. It's a, a lot of people feel safe in their silos. A lot of managers, you know, that's the siloed organization, the hierarchy, the levels and all that. And he... He came to, I have a, I used to have a practitioner group in Paris. We would meet every month and I would invite people that I knew from my network to come and talk. He's from a German and huge German company. He came and talked to us. And at one point he said, you know, silos are fine. And we in the room, we sort of looked at him and I, as the person who invited him, I said, I just want to know what is he going to say next? 
And what he said was really wise. He said, my silo is my neighborhood, but my neighborhood is part of a city. And he had a really strong point there. I think that was really, really important. In our organizations, we need a place where we feel I am chez moi. This is, this is where I live. This is, this is me, my neighbors. But I have to remember they're all this broader picture that's very, very important and has an influence on us and goes actually beyond the organization. But that's even taking it one step further. But I love his silo is my neighborhood and my neighborhood is in a city. I thought that was a very simple way of getting a, quite a strong point across. And the filter bubble, that was my last comment. That's uh, always been the case for management. Too many levels of people you have to go through. If you're in an organization, you have an idea, you want to do something about it, you normally have to talk to your manager, who will talk to another manager, or talk to another manager. And by the time it gets at a certain level, it's probably been diluted down uh, too much. Uh, a guy in India, a journalist, a business journalist in India, said to me, most, and I'm quoting now, most management teams reflect on a regular basis, such as a one year, once a year off site. There's a lot of song and dance, and then they go back to doing what they did before. Uh, what they need to do is watch what's happening at the boundaries of their organization, look at the outliers, we can say gig mindsetters, who are chipping away without their realizing it. And this is from a business journalist of, in India. They have a, quite a lot of operations. He, he knows firsthand a lot of the top business people <clears throat> excuse me, in India. And I think he has a good vision of what happens to management when they plan for the future once a year and then they go back to the office. Does that all make sense? Absolutely. I, I love that. That last one, I have a, a, con a concept of that. The way I visualize that, I'm very visual with these things and use metaphors a lot to explain the work we do. And, and I often think of those events like a splash. So there's a big splash. But actually, what's required is a ripple. So you need you need the splash, but the ripple is a persistent ripple that consistently pervades the entire organization and goes right to the edges, right to the banks of the river and touches everybody and actually touches the interface between the river and the earth, which is the silo and the greater neighborhood as well. I think that that's where this work is so important. And the the, the splash is still important. I think the the announcement that this change and, you know, recognition of the gig mindsetters across an organization or the initiatives that worked and the initiatives that we tried and failed all that's important as part of the splash but it's the ripple is where the magic happens jane i was going to move on to hr and i have huge empathy for people in hr at the moment in particular because a their own roles are going through massive change because of the volatile times we're in b that they often don't have full board support. I mean, HR should have a seat at the boardroom table. L&D should have a seat at the boardroom table. But that's the, traditionally, that's not been the way. And you say HR is often struck between what management wants to do, what management wants them to do, and what they need to be doing for the people. HR is the one function that can connect management worlds with real actions. I thought that was a key point that I'd love you to expand upon. I came across that idea. I discovered that idea from my survey data back in 2011. 
I, in, I, my survey was 100 questions. It took people an hour to answer it. And people did answer it because they got a, like a 100-page report afterwards. And it was the only report coming out in detail at that point in time about the digital workplace, the organization of the digital age. And so that it was, I got a lot of incredible input uh, through that. And in 2011, I saw that HR was practically never cited as a member of the digital strategy board or the social collaboration inside the organization. But then uh, like a year or two later, I looked again and I saw that HR was beginning to lead social collaborative and digital initiatives in the organization. And when they did, those organizations were well advanced compared to others. It was like there'd been sort of an awakening and the HR function, because it's close to people when it's working well, can really bring change about uh, much more so than IT, even though IT is moving in that direction these days. If you have HR driving some kind of desire for change that relates to people, it's, it's likely to succeed. I talked to someone in the financial, an HR person in the financial industry in Canada, and she said to me, the whole idea of a gig mindset has to be modeled from the top. So you need leaders who are comfortable working with or leading people who know more than they do. And putting themselves in a position of being partners as opposed to the boss. And I think HR is recognizing that they are partners with people. And it's a tricky, sometimes I think they're caught on this sort of tightrope between what management wants them to do and what they feel they should be doing for people. And it's a tricky position. And I think uh, some of them are breaking out of it and going towards the people's side or finding ways to bring the two sides together. I think potentially they have a lot of, uh, how would I say, really positive potential for organizations. They can bring a lot of benefit. There was a line that I pulled that absolutely resonated and I experienced firsthand again in not one organization, but several <laughs> that I worked in, everyone that I worked in. And that is what you said there about there's always somebody in the organization working, the outliers or the gig mindsetters across the organization, trying something beneath the radar. And I've done this myself. And while it's useful, it doesn't really go that far where you don't involve management. And the reason you don't involve management is you say, the people pushing to bring about change often do not involve senior management feeling that their participation is unnecessary. In these cases, senior management may have a sense of losing control because the traditional steps for agreeing to objectives and strategy and for setting up projects and associated schedules are shortened drastically, or in my case, certainly skipped altogether. And the idea there was the time it would take me to get people on board, I would have the project done and finished and a, an actual MVP out there with some really experiential data to tell me what was going on. And that was just killing me to actually go through that process. And this is what you find with a lot of gig mindsetters. That's absolutely what you find. Uh, a good example I came across that I found really inspirational and this is the guy who who from whom I got the civil disobedience term as a concept was they were a very large company big industrial company 
And uh, literally, like, uh, I don't know today, but at the time, a couple of years ago, there were 200,000 people. They might be down like to 180,000 now. I don't know, but they are huge. And uh, there were people all over the organization doing things that were exploring sort of different ways of working, but they weren't aware of each other. He was because he was actually looking for it. And so uh, he set up a social network and an internal social network, an enterprise social network, and invited these people to come and share their experiences. And they they did, and it was all great. And then they decided they wanted to do something to get management involved because so far management wasn't involved in any of this stuff. So they did something I would call in real life. They organized an event out in the open, uh, by say out in the open, outdoors, uh, on a big green space, around where executives had their offices, executives you know, up on the higher floors, they could see down onto the lovely park area. These people came in and they created like a, a carnival, a festival with posters and stands and drinks and snacks. And people were going from stand to stand, sharing their experiences. And then a top guy came downstairs and said, what's going on? What's happening? They explained to him and he said, but where is HR? Why is HR not here? And they explained politely, I believe, that they didn't see a need to involve HR. And they told me afterwards, HR would not have brought any, in their case, HR wouldn't have brought anything to what they were doing. And they were trying to get voices. They believe that change comes from the fringes, it comes from people, and that it flows up to management. We mentioned earlier on the term resilience and you highly emphasize this building proactive resilience and you show how the gig mindset builds proactive resilience essential in these volatile times you tell us the gig mindset enables reachability meaning that everyone is able to reach and be reached and is necessary for organizations in order to mobilize and act effectively when faced with unexpected events there are two elements that you find especially relevant to our exploration of the gig mindset, and they are horizon scanning and adaptive capacity. I'd love you to unpack these. These two, I love the terms, and I can see how relevant they are for the gig mindset. Great. I think that they are very, very important too. I agree completely with you. The horizon scanning in particular is something that, as I said earlier in our conversation, just doesn't happen enough. And, uh, Someone I read said that horizon scanning means we're looking for evidence of the future in the present, that we're looking for traces, signals. They may be weak, but they are dynamics that are occurring now that may evolve to influence the way we're going to live and work in the future. And uh, as you know, that's how I discovered the gig mindset, as I explained earlier. I saw these patterns of people capabilities, the management down here. And I think that was for me, those were the emerging signs, the evidence of what was going to be what was going to start happening then. And I think will continue happening even stronger uh, in the future. And um, horizon scanning is, well, we talked about it already a little bit, uh, but I'd like to tell a story or just a quick example from a guy I interviewed on my podcast. Uh, he talked about orchestrating space to create competitive advantages. And his company is Steelcase, which is a 
sort of in a traditional description, it's furniture, architecture, technology products. And he talked about orchestrating space to create competitive advantage. And he talked about how when they have the free reign to design an office from scratch, they will, of course, have a lot of glass. People can see each other. They can see what's going on. And they have spaces where people can exchange ideas that they've heard, what they've been thinking about, and so on. And they always put management offices in a visible place. This is quite different than most companies, with transparent, uh, part of the windows, uh, walls transparent. And he laughed and said, you know, where we really put them, Jim, we put them between the people and the coffee machine. Because we know they will see the people going by, they can step out, grab someone and talk. Someone walking by will feel more likely that they can knock on the door, go in and talk to this head person. And so I think that's that's part of the sharing that needs to take place when people are discovering things about the future. They must be shared. They must be shared at the very top level of the organization, and they must be shared at the edges of the organization. So I think horizon scanning is, is important. The second thing we talked about was adaptive capacity, and that's uh, the ability to adapt when change occurs. And obviously that's, that's complex. Uh, I based my first work on the British Standards Institute. They did a resilience index. And they uh, asked, uh, forget how many hundreds of uh, leaders of organizations to rate certain traits they felt were essential for resilience. And adaptive capacity and horizon scanning were two of those traits that were related as so-so in terms of importance in the first year in 2017, and they went up to the top in their index in 2019. So again, it is a change that's taking place. These people, this the need, they recognize the need for these things. These are leaders in organizations. It's a leadership survey. From going to the bottom of a requirement to nearly the top is a big deal. They were also asked, what's your performance like, your organization's performance in these things? And that was way down at the bottom. So we have the beginning of a recognition there that we need to be able to adapt. And we need to be able to do that. We need to be scanning the horizon. And I think that was, it's always fun when I see something from an external source, especially a, a authoritative source like the British Standards Institute that completely correlated with my research. When I, every, every year starting in 2013, I asked people, to rate their degree of agreement with this statement. Our organization can rapidly respond to major events or transitions, market changes, competition, economy downturns, environmental or disaster events. They had to rate from strongly agree to strongly disagree, five degrees, you know, the standard thing. And back in 2013, only 25% agreed. And unfortunately, when I went up a little bit, but by 2018, there was still only 35%. And so that corresponds somewhat to what the British Standards Institute found, the ability to adapt, to know what's going on and to adapt to it is not, not high in organizations. The third point that I made there is something that has struck a lot of people, uh, which is what I call reachability. And I wrote an article about it for the Drucker Society. Uh, forum blog, uh, and it caught a lot of attention. In an organization, people need to be able to reach 
other people, both directions. They need the people anywhere in the organization should be able to reach other people in the organization. Information needs to flow in different directions in an organization. And in my work from the beginning of my survey with my client work and in lots of people working on what we call the digital divide, organizations where the from a digital viewpoint, they're sort of the haves and the have-nots. And it used to be a criteria of what I call the desk-based workers and the non-desk-based workers. Uh, it can also be the center of the organization versus the edges of the organization where you have this digital divide. Uh, but today, uh, we now have a digital divide in that we obviously need to reach people in their home office, in their office office, uh, in both places, and partners, external people. We need this digital connection, this reachability uh, across, across organizations, and it makes things visible, very visible. I'm keen to try and give our audience an overview of the structure of the book, and then the case studies are in the book for those who really want to see them, these concepts brought to life. But there's a key part in the book, part four, where you talk about opening minds and opening organizations. And this is an in-depth look into what you call openers. And I really wanted to share that another term you coined. These are ways to trigger new thinking and actionable initiatives to help cultivate a gig mindset work cultures. You say openers are the first step, an essential one. They are reverse leadership, accountable decentralization, fast learning that you mentioned earlier on, improvisation, work-life balance. And I'd love us to explore these five ways to open minds and create the means for building a gig mindset and thereby more resili resilient organizations. And I'm going to tee you up with a beautiful quote, one of the many, Jane, that I've pulled from the book. You said... Building a gig mindset is both an individual challenge and an organizational challenge. You need to open minds, you need to open organizations. This means reducing old barriers that you mentioned earlier on, and transforming ingrained ways of working that have existed for decades. So I'll hand it over to you, maybe you'll unpack each one of those at a high level. Uh, reverse leadership uh, is based on what I call wise ignorance and encouraging a spirit of contradiction. And I like very much an organizational theorist, Carl Weick, if you're familiar with his work. And he talks about how contradiction is the best way that we can prepare for an uncertain future. And he said, it's better than people agreeing because when people contradict, they have different opinions, it brings out a range of ideas. And that's more helpful when you're dealing with the unexpected than if everyone's in agreement about something. And he says, consensus just is not effective in a volatile environment. And he goes so far as to say it decreases resilience. I think it's a, a strong statement. And I think it's, uh, you know, this whole idea of reaching consensus is just not the way to go today. And I think that's a, that's a strong takeaway for people. I have a quote here. It's a beautiful one. It says, resilience depends on decentralization. When decision making, knowledge and power are located in a single place, the organization is slow and fragile. Gig mindsetters are comfortable taking initiatives and responsibility without waiting for official approval and are therefore ready to act quickly once they're needed. That's right. 
And for accountable decentralization to really take meaning and really last in an organization, the organization needs some fundamental principles, strategic guidelines that are very high level, but enable people to think is what I'm doing now, does it fit with those guidelines? Does it contradict a guideline? Is it in the main direction that we want to go? And then people can be free to make their own decisions. I call it freedom in a framework. And I know a lot of people use that term. That's not original from me. And I don't even know where it came from. Uh, but it's a, it means a lot to me. You have a framework, but there's a lot of freedom within that framework. And I did a I had a, a great experience uh, in Paris with one of the big luxury brand companies with major divisions and the brands of those divisions. I'm not going to put their names out, but they're like the biggest in the world in terms of shoes and jewelry and things like that. And headquarters decided we need to have a single digital workplace. So we're going to bring together the individual leaders of the workplaces for these different brands and work together. And it was quite a challenge. And the way I drove them was to define what they felt were absolute principles that they needed to follow. They defined three and they said um, four. They said the digital workplace, whatever the brand, whatever the country should strengthen the links among us, enable employees to make good decisions and take responsibility, simplify everyday work and life. Those are great principles for a, a digital workplace. And beyond that, each brand could do what they wanted to do. And to make a long story short, in the second meeting we had afterwards, like uh, two or three weeks later, the biggest powerful brand came to that meeting sort of uncomfortable saying, you know, I'm really sorry, but we've decided we, we can't go with this group project. We're going to stay with what we have now. And of course, it was resistance. And someone said, not me. Honestly, it was not me. One of the, <laughs> one of the other people there said, let's take a look at our principles. And someone flashed up a slide that had the three principles and there was discussion and the big brand agreed that what they were doing was in contradiction with one of those principles and the project was able to continue. And that's a story I love because it's a, well, for me, because I, I experienced a case where freedom within a framework was the answer to keep that thing going for, for the organization. I'm going to tee you up for fast learning because there's a, a lovely idea in here. You say fast learning is a result of connected people interacting, sharing information and developing skills in the natural flow of work. It makes organizations more actively alert to what is happening around them, thereby increasing their resilience. The awareness and sharing are part of the gig mindset. Yeah, fast learning is not the way people used to think about learning. And uh just going back briefly to my data, for a number of years, I asked a question, how easy is it for you to, or for people to learn in the natural flow of work inside your organization? And this is a really, really exciting point in that from 2013, where people said fewer than 20% said it was easy, to 2018, we reached 64%. The fast learning Learning in the flow of work had been increasing very fast. It was one of the fastest, fastest trends in my research. And I thought that was very encouraging. Uh, learning in the natural flow of work. And it's the way startups work. 
in my research, I didn't keep my research to the big mega players like my luxury brand in Paris. I interviewed a, a woman who works in a startup with maybe 100 people based in, I think, London. And uh, she said, there's no training in our company. There's no user. There's no manuals. There's nothing. When you come in, all you are supposed to do is go around, talk to people, learn what they do, find out what they think you should do, and ask loads of questions. She said, it's a better someone who comes in and asks a lot of questions is going to last longer in our company than someone who comes in and doesn't say anything. And so that's the whole way. It's a company, 100 people. And you might say, well, 100 people, that's easy. But I think the spirit that that company had can be applied in different ways uh, to other organizations, not putting things out and this is the way you do things, but talk to people, find out how they do things, find out how that could help you or not help you. Yeah, I love that. And, and you see it on, on big organizational transformations such as Microsoft, where Satya Nadella encouraged learn it alls, not know it alls. That whole concept really struck me. But one of the things that I thought about about gig mindsetters, because this is a reality, unfortunately, for many gig mindsetters listening to the show, is that they find themselves sneaking their learning in. So it's almost, well, I'm so overloaded with work, or I'm so overloaded with bureaucracy at work, that I don't have time to learn on the job. So I have to actually find times in my own time, during my family time, at weekends, whenever it is, sometimes I sneak off to conferences, my organization doesn't even pay for those conferences. And isn't that such a tragedy? And it's a reality for so many. That's something that we won't go into detail here. But it's the it's the way uh, Sanofi Pasteur set up a learning initiative in their organization that they call learn, apply, share. And it made individual initiatives in learning become part of uh, the job and by following a little process, a light process, and it became part of the of their job. And I think, as you suggested earlier, uh, it's nice to encourage people to discover these case studies. The Sanofi case is a really interesting one. I I covered it in an article. I just uh, was very happy to have published in the Harvard Business Review uh, that uh, came out just a couple of days ago. Congratulations! Thank you very much. You're, is that your cat? My cat is looking for something or else enjoying our conversation. Big mindset are trying to escape an organization. <laughs> <laughs> Probably that's it. I hope you have a special thing in your editing tool, remove cats. No, we'll leave, we'll leave the cat in. It adds reality to, to the situation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can hear the, the wind chimes as well. I know you said it's very windy in Provence at the moment. The cat is uh, exemplifying this, working out loud. <laughs> is an extremely important aspect of the gig mindset. And this really tugged at my heartstrings a bit because I found that most times I worked in a gig mindset mindset, or worked on emerging projects, I did it in quiet, I did it in silence, I did it in secret almost and that whole idea of ask, for, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, which is which is unfortunate, but was the reality at the time, but this needs to change. And this is the whole idea of working out loud. And you tell us, it is important to understand that working out loud is a practice independent of technology. An example you share from NASA of working out loud long before digital work environments were, were the norm powerfully illustrates how it is a mindset independent of technology. Werner von Braun, head of the Marshall Space 
Flight Center, part of NASA, set up a system for working out loud half a century ago called Monday Notes. It's based on paper pens and a duplicating machine. I thought we'd share this because I'm sure gig mindsetters who listen to the show who run teams will absolutely love this story. I loved it when I came across it. I came across it on the website of a space historian, <laughs> a guy who's been writing about good stories about space for, well, a very long time. And what the deal is, uh, what uh, Van Braun did was he had his people every Monday send him a one-page note, just one page. It was forbidden to have more than one page, and you had to list what you had done the previous week, the successes, the concerns, and the questions. And he then made comments on these papers, as we said, it's not digital. He made comments on these, uh, these Monday notes, sent them back to the people who wrote them. But before he sent them back, his assistant uh, photocopied them. And the notes were shared across the organization. And so there we had the bottom-up feedback of here's what we did, here's what we're thinking about. Reactions from the top, okay, fine, I hear this question, what do you think about this? And then shared the whole thing across the board. And uh, I think that's a fantastic example. And I understand again from the Space Historians uh, blog that when Van Braun no longer was in that job, the next person who took over tried to do the same thing, but it wasn't the same because he made it an institution and it became as something that wasn't nearly as fluid as when Van Van Braun did it. And Aidan, I have another case that um, I can't remember if it was in the book or not. I think it probably was. A woman from Latin America contacted me and she said, you know, we're working out loud using whiteboards. And I asked her about that. And what she did was she encouraged people in her company to have a whiteboard that was visible from the window of their office. And you just write on the whiteboard what you're doing or what your meetings are about or what's happening. And people could walk through the halls, look at the whiteboard and get a sense of what's going on. And more and more whiteboards started popping up in the organization and pretty soon it became the way of working. Whiteboards, whiteboards were the place to go if you wanted to know what other people were doing. And again, it's that philosophy of sharing and an advantage about sharing with people who are not on your team is that you will get feedback and reactions and ideas from other people in the organization you wouldn't have thought could contribute to your project, and they can. You can't possibly know everyone in the organization who can help you. And by sharing what you're doing visibly, those people will be able to contribute to your, your success. I, I I'll share I'll share a bit of my childishness uh, to Jane for on the on the idea of the whiteboards. When when I worked in what organization, I I used to have fun. Anytime I was in a meeting room, I'd write on the the whiteboard project Thunderbolt, and the whole idea was see if that that message would come back to me, see what the information flow was across the organization, and in time people were kind of going, have you heard about Project Thunderbolt? And I was like, kind of going, no, what is that? Sounds really interesting. And they're like, going, I don't know, but there's it, there's meetings happening about Project Thunderbolt. And it became this myth in the organization. <laughs> Just it, it proved that point about working out loud that it actually works. The the Monday note, just to say to you, I, I, uh, I have a weekly blog called The Thursday Thought. 
and uh, it came from it came from the the title the Monday note not not because I, I didn't hear about Van Braun it actually came from two French authors Jean Louis Gasset and Frederic Filou who write on media and they have a blog called the Monday note and I I used to see the discipline with which they wrote every week and when I started writing six years ago I, I actually used their their idea and I called it the Thursday thought. So there's a, a nice little bit of history there for me about that. I love the Sanofi case study that you mentioned there as well. I highly recommend checking out the book to check out that case study. Also, the quotes that Jane shares are quotes from real people in real organizations collected over many years and are absolutely fantastic. But let's get through the rest of these uh, the, the, the principles. The next one was improvisation. And you tell us in brief on improvisation that it means deciding an inaction when faced with an unexpected and unplanned for event. It is deliberate and occurs without advanced planning. Without the ability to improvise when necessary, an organization cannot be resilient. And gig mindsetters are highly aware of what is happening around them and always ready to think and act outside the box. They are able to improvise when faced with the unexpected. And it's one of the skills of a gig mindsetter. Improvisation is often confused with innovation and with certain famous examples like the post-it, like the ones you can see my thinking post-its behind me, uh, accidentally discovered and then becomes a big product. That's not improvisation. Uh, I came across, I was looking, there aren't many examples of true improvisation. I looked, I put out a word on LinkedIn, on Twitter, I didn't come up with very much. And then I came across, well, first of all, a quote from one of my survey participants who said to me, experimentation would not work in my company. And I said, why not? And he said, because management has a long memory and no one wants to re be remembered over the years as someone who failed in an experiment. That's a, that's a, a sad, powerful <laughs> statement. And on the more positive note, sort of, if we can call it positive, there were two really examples, two strong examples of improvisation that came during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, and I will let people read the book to get the details. But one was a guy who runs a pizza shop in Chicago, the guy who had his own pizza shop, Demos Pizza in Chicago. And he decided he could make face shields in his pizza oven. Uh, so he made the face shields that could not be used in hospitals because it wasn't approved by the by the you know the U.S. authorities for approving medical devices, but it could be used in many many facilities for homeless people, elderly people, individual workers. And so he was there uh, making his heat shields rather than making pizzas. Second example, which I find also very interesting, was from Decathlon or Decathlon, a sporting goods store. But uh, what happened in the improvisation incident is someone realized that the diving masks that they sold could be used as respiratory, what do you call it? Respiratories, respiratories. What's the word in English? Machines. Je ne sais pas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't Respirators. know. Respirators, I think. Uh, respirators, thank you. And there was a university in Spain. And then there was a, a group of people, a 3D printing company in Italy who discovered it and they used the Decathlon diving mask to make this equipment. And Decathlon donated, of course, Decathlon's a great company. They donated all of the masks they had, continued making the more masks to these companies to get that essential equipment out there. 
And for me, those two examples were really génial, as we would say in French, incredibly positive, helpful, and really faced with something unexpected, doing something new. Uh, so that, that's an example of improvisation that I found really inspiring. I wanted to show you this book. It's, it's, called, it's called Yes to Mess. And it's, oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I've Frank got, Barrett. I've yeah. got it over oh, dear. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Frank's a uh, future guest on the show. And it's it's about the, you know, lessons from jazz, as you know, and the improvisation uh, techniques of jazz. Anyway, I just wanted to, to share that with you and our audience as well. L let's keep moving on to because work life balance is absolutely under fire at the moment, I would call it. So many of the organizations I work with, people have great intentions to innovate, to educate, to upskill, to the to embrace the forgetting curve that you mentioned as well. But they don't have the time. And, and it becomes down to a case of, well, I have so much on my plate, I can barely think. And I'm actually finding myself working at home with my kids on the laptop, putting them on the computer on the PlayStation on the tablet while I'm trying to get some emails fired off. And they just have no cognitive capacity for this. So th that's a huge crisis, I think, in the workforce. But you say a resilient organization is made up of resilient people, motivated and energetic people who have a healthy balance between their work and personal lives. Getting this right balance has long been considered to be an individual challenge. For many years, people who burnt out were considered to be weak or, or unable to control their schedules and pace of working. They, they themselves felt ashamed. This view is changing, thankfully, long ignored by companies and people themselves. Burnout is now recognized by the World Health Organization as a syndrome usually caused by the work context. And you say gig mindsetters are in fact more likely to achieve the right balance because they have a sense of control over their work. And that sense of control is so important to this work-life balance. It sure is. And I, uh, I have a group of people that I, I, deal, I follow every year. They are uh, managers in different companies. We used to meet in Paris once a month. And I would organize a big lunch in January of every year. So the New Year's lunch. And in 2020, I was stunned. We were having cocktails. Someone started talking about work, stress, lack of balance. And one person openly, because these people have known each other now, there's a certain degree of trust among them. He shared the fact that he'd been struggling with burnout and, and distress about his work. A doctor gave him a three-month rest period away from work. And I had him on the phone many times during that period. And he was in emotional agony about what to do. He felt he had failed. And so he finally left the organization uh, and found a smaller level job somewhere else, something he really likes. A second person in the same group at the same time had had a heart attack because of stress related to work. And he was with us. He was back again after a year of convalescence with his, he was still on crutches. And he shared a bit about that experience. And then for me, the topper was a third person who said, you know, we had an official study done in our organization. We brought in an independent third party who surveyed all of our senior executives. This is a huge company. And one third of the executives said that they had come very close to or had actually burned out at a certain period in time. And the thing, we had a group of 20 people in all. And those three stories came from a group of 20 people. 
And that was my realization that this is, this is common. This is not something exceptional. And um, there's an article we need to put a link in in the show notes that was in the Harvard Business Review. It was called Employee Burnout is a Problem with the Company, Not the Person. And there are three causes that this guy identifies. One is excessive collaboration. Second is weak time management. And the third is overloading highly talented people with too much work. And these are things that come from the organization, not from people. And uh, I think that article and another one I'll send you a link for, uh, there's been some serious research done now. Uh, And the thing about gig mindsetters is they have a certain control over their work. They insist on it. They have, they manage themselves and they, if they cannot, if they're not able to have that necessary degree of control over their work, they will probably go to another organization where they can. And um, that's why I think the work-life balance is uh, easier for them to achieve than it is for for other people. And I just wanted to contextualize that, Jen, just so some of our audience don't feel that they're failing as well, because as a gig mindset, or some of them are gig mindsetters, but that doesn't mean that if you are struggling, that you are failing, it means the organization's failing you. And, and I really want to emphasize that point. And the other thing is, you mentioned there, there's a great book, and he's a future guest for the show, Jeff, Jeffrey Pfeffer, on a book called Dying for a Paycheck, pa- Dying for a Paycheck. And, and actually, it's one of the reasons it's one of the things that drives me with this work is that it's hard enough to work in an organization anyway. <laughs> but then when things are going when things are when you're overloaded, it makes it harder. But what makes that even harder is if you're wearing a mask of this persona and putting on a front all the time. And the energy it takes out of you to be wearing that mask on a consistent basis, just no wonder people are getting sick and cancer and heart attacks, because they're, they're very rarely able to be who they truly are. Yeah. That is just so important. And the second link I'll send to you that you can share involves a seven-year longitudinal study by a university in the United States who discovered that people live longer if they have a better work-life balance. It is literally (laughs) saving lives. So Jane, let's move to part five. And part five you call investing in the movers. And this looks at how organizations can find and keep gig mindsetters. And I'll set you up again with an excerpt here. You said organizations have long talked about investing in people. You use the term movers here to reinforce the image of gig mindsetters and their natural drive to move their organization into the future. They strive to bring new ways of working that are adapted to today's work reality to world reality to their organization. They work to move the mindset of others to their way of thinking in order to achieve relevance, resilience and success together. The terms gig mindsetter and mover are used interchangeably to underline the fundamental role they play in organizations. Over to you to explain what that means. I think that gig mindsetters are able to have more influence than they realize uh, in organizations via their actions. And um, one thing that you highlighted in your notes to me was talking about invisibility and invisible, how, how would I say it, 
if your work is very important, but it doesn't fit into the traditional view of what work should be, it may be invisible. How can that be evaluated? How, how, how can you be understood very simply by the people who are going to determine your pay level and who are going to manage you? And I had a couple of um, really interesting ideas from people in my survey, including one who gave me a, a, a good idea. One person said to me that she sees gig mindsetters as people working undercover. They work in the gaps between official initiatives and they bring life to spaces in the organization where there was nothing before. It's almost like something in science fiction, isn't it? When the project takes shape and is sustainable, someone else takes over because the organization prefers a visible project manager with a, an understood profile. So then what does a gig mindsetter do? Move on to another invisible space. And that's the way she saw her role. She was in a third organization, but she got organization hopping. Uh, she was three to four years each time in each organization and, and really um, bringing about uh, some change in these organizations. There's a, there's a great book, uh, Jane, and, and previous guests of the show, Shannon Lucas and Tracy Lovejoy, and they wrote a book uh, about catalysts in organizations. And and I, I actually, before I discovered the book, I'd written an article about the gig minds. I didn't call it the gig mindsetter then, but the, the person the gig mindsetter is, I call them a catalyst because what happens in the science of cat, uh, a catalyst, if you think of a match, the catalyst in the match actually gets burned up in the transaction and is invisible. It's it disappears. And I thought that that's actually what the gig mindsetter does. But there's a problem there. And this happened to me in that in that story I was telling you earlier on, about the performance review. I, I was sat down I was like, I want you to stop doing this, this and this. And then and tell me what you were doing. And I kind of gave a report of the stuff I was doing. And um, of course, the face started to get kind of more screw <laughs> start with scrutiny looking at my my job spec. And then kind of going, none of this has anything to do with your job spec. And I was like, well, there's nothing on my job spec that can be measured. And this is how I how I can articulate what I'm doing that a lot that that supports all those things in my job spec. But they're very hard to articulate, because it's, um, you know, the way the concept I had was, you know, when when you're a kid, or you're teaching a kid to draw, and you might give an outline, and you kind of go, here's kind of what a what a house looks like now over to you, and you fill in the gaps. And it's kind of like that you, you start that way with a light kind of tracing. And then you start to get and then you start to get shape on it. And then when it's actually steady, like you said, when it's steady and stayed, and I have it sorted, I hand it over to somebody because I'm not interested anymore. But also, in doing that, I hand over the credit. And that's the exactly. that's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And um, there's some good quotes in my book about what people, people who have experienced that what they've done. But one I just want to share with you now, which I think is maybe the answer to some extent, I don't know if you've thought about this, of course, you're not in that situation anymore. But this person talked to me about the fact that you need to manage up, not manage down. And they said, I think it was a woman, yeah, if there's distance between you and the senior executives, the more nebulous it is what you do, and how you're identified, the harder it is for them to get a good grip on it, unless they've been involved in your projects. 
what you need to do is manage up so that they have an understanding of what your role is. And I think that's easy to say. I think it's a good idea. In some cases, it's probably hard to do, but I think it's something most people don't think about. You manage your team, but are you managing the person who's managing you? Did you think about that when you were in that context? Yeah, and I, and I tried, and it was it was difficult to get an audience. That was the difficulty. And, and like you said, the reachability wasn't there. And when the reachability wasn't there, I didn't have any air cover. And when I was exiting that organization, I had a, a, a talk with the people who hired me at the higher level, and I told them my experience. And they said, <laughs> and they said, why didn't you talk to us? <laughs> it's like, I tried, I tried to get and, and they knew what they knew in a way the the ruckus that I would cause. And it was almost like an experiment. But I but my kind of message was, if you're going to do that, you need to provide the air cover without the air cover, the person's just going to be like that scene in the platoon where you're just getting shot to bits. <laughs> That's it. That's one of the roles of managers is to provide air cover. And um, they don't always do it. <laughs> in interest of time, we're going to jump to part seven of the book. And this will speak to many of you, our audience, the change makers out there. And this is about owning your personal strategy. And you closed the book with this, Jane, with three paths that we the gig mindsetters may choose to follow based on our situation in the organization, the advocate path, the compromise path, or the exit part. In this part, you share advice, warnings and examples. And again, I'll tee you up here and I'll place a lens here for many of the members of our audience who grapple with the idea of freedom to do more work they love versus the security of the golden handcuffs and benefits like healthcare that you mentioned is so important. And you write here, strengthening your personal development as you work in your organization may help you be more marketable externally as well as internally, should you be impacted by downsizing, restructuring, or even a merger. And that's the point here, you can build the gig mindsetter muscle within the organization, which will benefit you should any change happen in the organization itself. And change is likely to happen no matter what the organization is. And when I when I talk about the advocate path, uh, that's working in the organization, you don't leave, you stay there, you try very hard to bring about change. And it can it's hard uh, in most cases. And um, I had three pieces of advice. One is to develop good relations and contact with more than one senior person. Your risk is the senior person who understands what you're doing could go to an organization, maybe more likely to leave than you are because he's or he or she is oriented towards the gig mindset. And you, second thing is you want to establish structural means to cultivate the gig mindset. And that might be physical events like having dinners in the evening or having events in the evening where you invite people from outside the company to come and talk uh, to your people in your organization and virtual structures, which are more likely to outlast any resistance uh, that you have from management if should you leave or should, the, should management change. So you wanna sort of build a, how would I say, a platform inside the organization that will support gig mindsetters. Um, a second, a thing to be careful about is the what I call the ego trap. Uh, maybe you can 
introduce that idea because if you're successful inside your organization, you've probably achieved something fantastic. There's a, a great quote about this. And, and this, again, spoke to me because that catalyst problem where you you're responsible for the work, you're the originator often of the idea, you've done all the hard work of bringing people together, the idea succeeds, and you get none of the credit. And you warn this and you say, be aware of the gig mindset ego trap. And you say when a gig mindsetter has achieved something outstanding and has been recognized for it, and the effort required to achieve it has been huge, which it so often is, it is only human to want to share the story externally as well as internally. It is important that the story of individual achievement is balanced with recognition of the teams involved, or the organization itself. And I've been there, you want to take credit. But oftentimes, the success of the project is absolutely reliant on you handing over the credit to somebody who can bring it on to the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you want to be very careful not to come across as the ego person who made all this happen. And it can cause severe problems if you do, which I talk about in the book. Another path is what I call the compromise path. And that's what you mentioned at the beginning. If you stay in the organization and you decide that you will not uh, keep fighting, uh, and what you do is you find an activity on the side that satisfies your need to be doing something different and helpful. And I know a lot of people are doing that even more today than they than they used to be doing because people do need healthcare, they do need uh, what's available in, in large organizations, but they need something on the outside to satisfy their 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 soul. And um, I think that's a that's important. A third path, of course, is get out. What I call the exit path. And it's funny, Aiden, I get emails now and then or LinkedIn messages. A guy wrote to me recently saying, guess what, Jane, I took the exit path, I'm out. And so <laughs> I write back to the person saying, good luck. And then we you know, exchange a few ideas about the whole situation. And you need to think if you're going to take the exit path, what will you do out there? And today it's easier than it was before. There are lots of people starting new organizations small companies, a lot of companies looking for people because people are leaving companies. And so this whole what's maybe over talked about in the media, the great resignation, I think there's a lot of truth there. And there's a lot of movement right now. And so it's an it's a time when it's, you have opportunities out there. And these are hard decisions to make, especially if you have a family to take care of, but they're things that you need to, to think about. And if you're inside the organization, you can think about, do I want to benefit from this and be as versatile as I can and move around doing these different things so I see these different mindsets and work with these different people so that when I leave, I'll have a broad range of experience? Or do I want to think in terms of building, crafting a career where I sort of manage people and I go up and up the career ladder? And it's two different ways of operating. And I think it's important to think about this even while you're still in the organization before you leave. Like you can take that in both ways. I, I talk about in my own book, the concept of build capability before you need it. So should the rug be pulled from under your feet? There's another rug there, You're, you've already built the muscle and the same thing with the gig mindset. If you are a gig mindsetter, start to experiment while you're in the organization, build that capability before you actually have to jump, almost have some clients set up before you go and leave. So you don't have that kind of real crisis. And, and I thought, Jane, I have a final quote I, I'd love to finish on, but 
one of the core concepts of all this work, and one that's very, very obvious from your work is fear. And you had a, a revelation on fear for us. And this is fear for me to leave the organization and become an external gig mindset. Or this is fear of letting go of the past that forgetting curve. This is fear of senior management and the resistance that they show because of fear. Fear is prevalent so much in so much of this work. You know, what's interesting, Aiden, I have to give credit for that discovery to Art Kleiner, who read my book a little while ago and sent me a fantastic message, which really made me feel someone like him appreciating my book and my work is, of course, very uplifting. And in his message to me, he said, the problem is not lack of a gig mindset, but the way people internalize fear of others to the extent it becomes habitual. And I suddenly thought, he said, my book addresses these fears in new ways. And of course, he continued a little bit, which I was grateful to him for bringing that out because I hadn't focused on fear so much. And then preparing for our conversation today, I went through the book and looked at different examples. And I suddenly realized Art put his finger right on the pulse, <laughs> typical of Art, uh, put his finger right on the pulse of what I was doing unconsciously. And I think it's uh, I think it's something that people need to work on. And I think it's going to be improving. I think that people are gaining a sense of purpose in what they want to do. I think the pandemic has been helpful for that. People are suddenly thinking, do I want to spend my life on the trans, you know, commuting to and from work? Uh, do I want to spend my life doing the job I'm doing now? Maybe not. Maybe I want to think again about my purpose in life. Organizations are thinking about their purpose thanks to the all the climate disasters we've had recently. And so there's a whole sense of purpose coming into organizations and to people's minds. And I think it's important to overcome whatever fears we might feel. And I have fears myself about certain things regarding my success of my next book, for example. I'm concerned about that. I have a certain fear. Maybe, it, you know, I'm sure you know what that's like. And I think we all have to overcome the fears that we have and move ahead. Uh, as Marcus Aurelius says, you have to move the way nature is leading you, your nature and the nature around you and not worry about what other people are thinking and doing. And uh, I think that's absolutely true. We have to move in the direction that we feel we should be moving, regardless of what obstacles we have and what fears we have. Beautiful, beautiful. Jane, I have a final quote that I'll quote, and then I'm going to hand to you to close today's show. Before I quote you from your book, where can people find out more? I'll share all the links that you mentioned. I'll ask you, please, to send me those links, and I'll put them in the show notes for people to find. But where can people find you directly? Uh, they can find me directly on Twitter. Uh, my name is NetJMC, at NetJMC. And I have uh, two relevant websites. One is called boldnewbreed.com. And then I have my traditional website for the last, I don't know how many years, netjmc.com. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn, of course. Uh, so I'm easy to find. And I really, really appreciate communication with people. Beautiful. Okay, well, I'll, I'll share those links. And I'm going to give this final quote. And then I'm going to come to you to for your final message, your call to action for our audience. So when you were exploring the gig mindset, and when you were exploring organizations, you said you found this cohort of people. And you said, there were always a few people who stood out from the others, 
people who dared to do things differently because they believed there was a better way. Although they were full-time salaried employees, their behavior seemed counter to the way most people work. They were at ease taking initiatives without prior management approval, uncommon behavior in most organizations. A few went so far as to get people together to tackle a problem without their supervisor even knowing there was an issue to be solved. Now and then, the issue crossed organizational silos, but these people ignored the traditional protocol of starting with a manager-to-manager agreement and just jumped in, spontaneously working together on the challenge. That was the quote that I absolutely loved. What about you? What's your final call to action for our audience today, Jane? Well, I guess my final call is that people need to follow what they feel within themselves is the right thing to do. And they need to do their best to involve other people in that to the extent that they can and to move forward on that, be it personally or from an organizational viewpoint. Um, And as I said, at the very beginning of our conversation, the whole thing starts with the individual. And I think if we all become more aware of our sense of purpose, what we want to do in life, and move in that direction and communicate and bring people into it when possible, I think we can make a big difference in the world. Author of The Gig Mindset Advantage, Why a Bold New Breed of Employees is Your Organization's Secret Weapon in Volatile Times. Jane McConnell, thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Awesome. Genial. (laughs) (laughs) Parfait. And as always, thank you to our partners over at Zai, a global fintech innovating in its area of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com.